0: Is investment something that's always been on your mind, but you don't quite know how to get started on that journey? We are here to set you on the right course. Welcome to My Cash Flow Academy's Investor's Corner with your host, Athena Paquette-Cornier. We are all about getting out of the rat race through creating positive passive income through real estate investing. Here, you'll hear from regular people just like you and the professionals who support us towards greater wealth. Learn before you earn move from analysis to action, and find the right path to attaining the success that you've always dreamed of for yourself. Now, here's your host, Athena.
1: So welcome everyone to Investor's Corner, where we chat with investors who have made it out of the rat race and tell us just how they did it. We also chat, though, with guests who who teach us about new tools and techniques and different investing opportunities that help us grow our wealth and get us out of the rat race, too. So I am Athena Paquette-Cormier, real estate investor, coach, mortgage advisor, and your host of Investor's Corner. Today, I have Bill Exeter, the CEO of Exeter Exchange and the Exeter Group of Companies, although I understand you wear different hats, different C hats at different companies, um, but the guy in charge. And uh, he's here to talk to us about, teach us about, and talk to us about the reverse 1031 exchange, or what I like to call the buy now, sell later. (laughs) Opportunity. So since we've identified some uh, new investors in our mortgage market that are willing to facilitate this, and you're going to hear kind of just how special that is. It's not very common to have um, a lender willing to lend on a reverse exchange. So uh, this is going to be very educational. But I thought because I've identified some investors, we probably should revisit what exactly is a reverse 1031 exchange. Who needs it? Who doesn't? Um, how it works and what the cost is and just get kind of an overall view of whether this might be ready for you and your portfolio. Um, So, Bill has been involved in the world of exchanges for over 30 years. And if I read right, 150,000 exchanges that you've been part of, it's probably more now, right?
2: Yeah, we we stopped counting and that's probably why I have almost no hair left. (laughs)
1: So, if someone knows about exchanges, it is, Bill, and especially uh, with the reverse exchange, though it's not utilized a whole lot in the past, I think more and more as we go forward in this ever-shifting market, we're going to see more people going, hmm, maybe I should identify my property that I want to go to before I start telling people they can have my old property because then that's mayhem. So, um and then, besides uh, the exchange part of the business, just real quick, uh, they also at Exeter Group do self-directed IRAs, land trust title holdings, and all kinds of other specialized uh, products and services. So be sure to check them out. So without further ado, thank you very much for joining me, Bill. I can't believe I think it's been five years since we've talked. I mean, not talked, but. Five years since we've had an educational program. So I'm pretty excited to have you here. It's good to be
2: here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was thinking back, wow, it's been a while, and COVID certainly changed a lot of things. So it, uh,
1: yeah, for sure.
2: Nowadays.
1: For sure. So, Bill, tell us about the exchange. And maybe give us some ground rules or some basics of exchange, of forward exchange, just to give us an idea of how the reverse kind of changes things. Oh, look at you with the fancy Q code.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and what I thought I'd do is kind of I'm just going to kind of fast forward through some of these. Um, and I'm not going to really cover the basics unless anybody has questions. We can go through. basics. Oh,
1: sure. We could do it that way
2: or anything like that, if, if that's okay, or whenever you, yeah. when you kind of quickly touch the more important parts of 1031s and then go into reverse.
1: Okay, sounds good.
2: Okay. Um, well, with that, we can kind of start with the basics that are the most important parts. And, you know, we, we always label our presentations unraveling the mystery of 1031 exchanges because, you know, we get, well, I guess the best way, we get three or four people who will call us and they say, I get three or four different answers after talking to three or four people. And I'm so confused. And what are the issues? And it really boils down to they're getting a lot of opinions. So what we Mm. try to do through our programs is talk about why that's happening, what the different opinions are, you know, what the real issues are, uh, what's the conservative and what's the aggressive position
1: Uh, inside the exchange. I mean, what's the aggressive way? And what's the more conservative way? Okay, got it.
2: Exactly. That way, you know, the investors, some investors like to push the envelope and get aggressive and others don't want to push any envelope and they want to be very, very conservative. So Mm -hmm. I think as long as they know what the real guidelines are and the issues are, and that there is a broad range or gray area, if you will, uh, then they can decide what they're comfortable with. So I think that's part of the key. And probably the, the more important areas, one is qualified use, of course. Uh, the properties that they're selling and the properties they're buying through the same 1031 exchange uh, are supposed to be held for some type of rental investment or business use. Mm. So that sounds pretty straightforward, but it gets confusing. Uh, you know, there are investors, a lot of investors who are either developers, builders, contractors, or they could be rehabbers and flippers, or they could be condo conversion specialists mm. in all of those Groups tend to buy, do something to the property and then sell. So they're really holding for sale. They're not holding for investment as far as 1031 exchange is concerned. Mm. So if it's held for sale, kind of like inventory in a real estate business, it typically doesn't qualify for a 1031 exchange. If it's held for rental or investment or business use, it would qualify. Or- so in
1: other words, if I'm hearing you right, you don't want to do a, you don't want to exchange into a flip.
2: Exactly. Right.
1: So you'd have to flip really slow. <laughs> <You know? laughs> a slow flip so that you meet the requirements. That's true. Well, you know, if I hold something three years, I flipped it. I just took a while.
2: <laughs> that's that's so true. They really look at intent. So if you get audited, that's what it boils down to. You know, did you have the intent to hold it for investment or did you intend to flip it? And um you know, there's people who may buy and rehab, but then they hold, so they would absolutely qualify. If they buy rehab and hold for sale, then it wouldn't qualify. That's why there's so much gray area. You know, what does mm-hmm. hold for investment really mean? And there's all sorts of interpretations. And you know, people get hung up on how long did you hold title to the property? Was it a year, a year and a day, two years? There's no holding period. That's what shocks people because they hear it all the time, but the code and the regs have no holding period. All they say is you have to have the intent, but the longer you hold it as rental, the easier it is to prove intent. So, that's why it, it's somewhat important, you know, and it helps to demonstrate intent, but it's not the, the deciding factor, really.
1: So, when you hear people say, oh, I was told I have to hold it a year and a day, it may very well be that's their CPA's, like, comfort level, maybe, it's it's like someone else's comfort. Cause since there's no in writing rule about that, then it's someone else, exactly. someone else's exactly. guess as what would be safe.
2: Exactly, that's exactly right. That's what it boils down to. Um, and and a perfect examples. We had one of our clients who sold, did an exchange, bought a condo, um, and didn't read the CCNRs. <laughs> and then a couple of days after escrow, figured out. Oh shoot! Uh, it had to be held as owner occupied. It could not be rented out. So uh, he immediately sold in an exchange. Uh, he was audited, and by the California Franchise Tax Board, but they allowed his ten thirty one exchange, even though he held the the first uh, acquisition for about a month and a little over a month, uh, because he could prove, especially with all of his panicked emails, that he intended to hold for rental purposes. It just there was a business. Interesting. Reason.
1: That's very interesting. Yeah. The other lesson I hear in there is read the CCNRs before you close escrow. <laughs> yeah. That might be a better idea.
2: <laughs> that was the first panic. Uh, I just read it, and I know I was supposed to do it before that, but yeah, that is very right. good. Uh, the other area we get lots of misinformation on or frustration on is like-kind property. And you know, there's still curriculum out there that says if you sell a condo, you have to, you have to buy a condo. If you sell apartments, you have to buy apartments. And that's not true and literally it means if you're you know if you're doing an exchange a like kind means you're selling real estate you have to buy real estate so anything that's considered real property will qualify as like kind as long as it's held for rental investment or business use
1: hmm.
2: so any even things that you would never think of like air rights water rights mineral rights oil and oh, gas oh that's interesting insurance. All of those would be considered real property. We've done exchanges on cell site towers, billboards, uh, timberland, vineyards, and there's just a lot of things. As is-
1: long as it produces, if I'm going to eat all the fruit myself, that's not an exchange. But if I'm going to create a business <laughs> out of the vineyard, then then that's an exchangeable. That's, that's a qualified property, right?
2: Yep. If you're doing okay. one yourself, you better like wine.
1: Yeah. God, not that much wine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but that, that's exactly right. That's exactly what it boils down to. Um, so it just has to be like kind. The only the only exception there is if you're selling U.S. property, you have to buy U.S. property. And if you're selling mm-hmm. foreign property, you have to buy foreign property. Uh, a lot of the websites out there tell you you cannot do a foreign property transaction. Uh, that's not true. What they really mean is you can't sell U.S. and reinvest in foreign And you can't sell foreign and reinvest in the U.S. through a 1031 exchange. So are you
1: saying that you could do, say, Singapore to Singapore? I have clients with Singapore property, right? So I guess because it's on your tax return, you want to protect yourself and do the exchange within the U.S. tax return, even if the property is foreign to foreign. Is that correct? Yeah,
2: that's correct. Okay. Because U.S., of course, wants to tax you on everything.
1: Right. They don't care where the property is, right? They
2: don't care where it's located. So as long as it's foreign to foreign, it doesn't have to be the same country it would qualify. So they really uh, have to calculate their gain in the U.S., calculate the gain in the foreign country. Of course, it doesn't defer the foreign country tax. Right. Uh, and they have to, They'll get a foreign tax credit for the foreign tax they paid uh, on their U.S. tax return. And then they determine whether it makes sense to do an exchange or not. And some countries have a very, very low tax rate, so it absolutely makes sense. And other countries have a higher tax rate; Uh it's probably a push or or it just doesn't make sense. Hmm.
1: Interesting. That, I love the MythBusters. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when you play MythBuster because there are so many misconceptions out there. So I love that.
2: They really are. It's, it's just amazing. Those are the calls we get, like, okay, I'm getting three or four different answers. I'm trying to figure out what really matters.
1: Well, I figured those people probably are seeking advice. So they're probably like calling a realtor, calling their CPA, maybe calling a lender, just getting opinions that are not from an exchange expert, right? So it's just whatever those people learned. And yeah, Absolutely. that's I, I'm Absolutely. guessing that's what's going on when that happens. Yeah,
2: that triggers a good thought because obviously each of those parties have a sliver of knowledge and a sliver of expertise, but not the mm-hmm. whole pie. Um, so the 1031 exchange expert like us, we know the 1031 exchange, but you know, sometimes there's something else on the tax return where it might not make sense to do a 1031 exchange and we wouldn't know that. So uh, it's always a very, very important to talk to the tax advisor, mm-hmm. and many of the tax advisors will know how to report the exchange, but not necessarily how to structure it. So it really requires both parties to kind of work together, and a, a conference call of all of them is perfect, because that way we can kind of flesh out all the issues.
1: hmm Right. Yeah, because everyone's every professional sees the event or the uh, strategy or the the uh, yeah the thing you're about to do. They all see it from their through their prism and how it affects their their area of expertise, but in your life. So your tax guy, I run into this all the time when people are, you know, doing their tax return. The the CPA wants to save them the most, take all the deductions they can legally take. But then through my prism, I'm like, hey, if you do that. You're hurting your chances of qualifying for the loan, right? So it's just—I think it's—it's it's that bit that you definitely do want to ask other people, all your experts, about the thing you're about to do, how it affects their area of expertise. Yeah,
2: absolutely, yeah, because they all have that little piece of pie that they need to put together to make sure it works.
1: Right, right.
2: Yep. The um, and as you were talking there, it triggered another thought too. Of one of the things you see on the internet and brochures and what have you is that you have to trade equal or up in value you have to reinvest all your equity, you have to replace your debt. Well, those are those comments are based on the fact that most exchangers want to defer all of their taxes. So that makes mm. sense. But you can do a partial exchange and it doesn't hurt the 1031 exchange. It just means you're going to pay some tax. So mm. your, your clients are probably just like our clients where they're often real estate rich and cash poor. <laughs> so. Right, <laughs> you sell for a million. Maybe you reinvest for eight hundred thousand. You trade down by two hundred thousand. You pay tax on the two hundred. Right, it creates a That's liquidity.
1: true. A lot of people think it's a, a, an all in or, or nothing. In other words, if you if you met, mess up by fifty thousand, you owe tax on the entire. Kind of like how IRAs would be, right? The minute you took, you know, you ruin the whole thing, and that's just not true with an exchange. And and some people could really use that money. And if you're in a low income bracket. You know, why not pay the little bit of tax to give yourself a cushion, right?
2: Absolutely. And in some cases, if you're in a low enough bracket for that particular year, your capital gain gain rate might be zero. It's a very unusual, but it's possible.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So you never know. The other thing, too, is like I mentioned other things in the tax return, a lot of investors who have a lot of real estate, maybe a W-2 income, et cetera. If they make too much money, they can't take advantage of the losses on their real estate. So it becomes a suspended passive activity loss. True. Trade down in value. If you trade down by two hundred thousand, you recognize two hundred thousand of taxable gain. But if you have two hundred thousand of suspended losses, that should offset that. And then right.
1: And if you've held it long enough, you might just well you know you have several properties. You may very well have that much right
2: it's very easy to get to that point, And people often forget that. And that's where we wouldn't know, you know, you've got to go to your tax advisor to figure that out.
1: Hmm. Cool.
2: So those are kind of the basics. I guess the other one we get a lot of uh, confusion over is, well, how much do you have to reinvest? Mm. So using the $1 million example, let's say they sell for a million dollars and they want to do a 1031 exchange. Uh, you can subtract your routine selling expenses, your broker's commission, title, escrow, etc. So out of a million-dollar sale price, when you subtract that, you might have a net sale price of 950 That's the magic number. That's what you have to reinvest in order to uh, defer all of your taxes. Um, so when you buy a new property, you'd buy a new property for 950 or greater, and that would be enough to reinvest uh, and, and defer all of your taxes. The um, And probably a perfect example um, is let's say somebody's got a million dollar sale, they've got 600,000 of loan, $400,000 of equity, and they wanna sell that property. So when you sell and it closes, they're gonna pay off the $600,000 in debt and the $400,000 of equity is gonna come to us as the qualified intermediary. Then you turn around and you buy, let's say one property, although you could buy multiple, but let's say you buy one property, Typically, you buy probably trading up in value. So maybe you buy for 1.2, that 400000 of equity is going to move over and be reinvested in that new $1.2 million acquisition, and then you get a new loan for the difference. So that way, you've traded up in value, you've reinvested on the top level, uh, you've moved your equity over, so all the equity has been reinvested. And then you got a new loan, which is the old debt of 600 dollars 200000 of, of additional debt because you traded up in value.
1: So ideally, though, because we talked about that there's no hard and fast rule about you know exchanging a, a same or up and all that, so d- ideally, we're trying to buy a property that's the same or greater value than our old one, right? And we're trying to also shift the same debt or re-encumber the new with new property with at least the amount of the old debt. Is that correct?
2: Exactly. Yep, that's exactly right. You could pay all cash for the the new property as well. So in that same example, maybe you buy a $1.2 million property or even just a $1 million asset, pay all cash for it with no debt. uh, That would work because you're replacing debt with out-of-pocket cash. So that also satisfies the reinvestment requirement.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, we have a question from Keith. And I think that kind of Answers it, but he says, can you pay off the loan on the property to make the residual a straightforward exchange without constraints tied to including the mortgage in the exchange? So I guess what he's saying is, what if you pay off the loan now on the existing, your departing property, could you pay that off and then exchange with no debt? Or do you have to pay cash on the new property? Um, So
2: I'm not quite sure. Are you going
1: to take it? So let's say you own a property right now and you have that $600,000 debt. If before I sell that, the current property, the, you know, um, if I pay off that $600,000 now before I sell, does that mean I can go into an exchange on the new property with no debt?
2: Yes. So in that case, you're paying off the debt prior to the close of the sale. So now you have a, a free and clear property, uh, when the sale of that asset closes, then you have about 950000 in cash, which would come to us as a qualified intermediary. All of that would go toward the purchase. That would certainly work. <clears throat> you, although you wouldn't have to pay it down up front, uh, you could just pay it off at the close of escrow, uh, and then you end up with 400000 in equity uh, going to the qualified intermediary. Then on the buy side, and this is where I'm not sure where the question is going, but on the buy side... If you used only the equity of four hundred thousand and bought a new replacement property valued at four hundred thousand. so you've traded down from one million to four hundred thousand with no debt, um, that may or may not defer any tax. It depends on what your cost basis is. but that mm-hmm. six hundred thousand would certainly be taxable. And if you're, if your taxable gain was less than six hundred thousand, it would trigger all of your taxable gain. And the 1031 exchange wouldn't provide any benefit. Mm-hmm. So it's possible right. to trade down. You just have to make sure you're not trading too far down so that there's no uh, no gain triggered and it wipes out the benefit of the 1031. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So he says he got it now because his Perfect. other question was 600 paid as part of the close of sale, not before. So in other words, I guess, you know, the day day before you're closing, you you wire in the money to pay off the loan. So, um yeah.
2: And so there's certainly lots of ways to kind of plan around that depending on what's right for you. And there's always moving parts as well. So mm-hmm. a part of that is trying to plan uh, You know, what the new property is going to be, any new lenders that might be there, what are their requirements, what are their underwriting guidelines, do they have any you know special issues or requirements, things like that. Normally right. you just pay it off at the close of escrow uh, and then you decide what you're going to do. And if you don't replace the debt Uh, At all, then you probably will have a taxable event, and if it's too much of a trade down, uh, it could trigger all of your taxable gain.
1: Oh, so if you trade down, you may owe all the tax.
2: Exactly. So, on that million-dollar example, let's say uh, you bought the property years ago for maybe three hundred thousand, and then over the years you've been depreciating. so maybe now you have an adjusted cost basis of about like one hundred and fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, until you buy $150,001, you're not deferring any tax. If you reinvested $400,000, then you're deferring um, with uh, $250,000, but the rest of the game would be taxable. So it, they don't prorate the cost basis so that as you're trading down, it's it 100% taxable. And if you trade too far down, it triggers all of your gain. And the only thing you would defer would be cost basis. So it gets a little complicated there, but that's essentially how it works.
1: Yeah. And my fear would be if I get too crazy and my numbers don't match, it's just a big headache, right? Even just even if you win an audit, you go through the pain of an audit and I why not just do it right? Right.
0: <laughs> so that's true, true.
1: I mean, I'm just, I'm a scaredy cat. I'm one of those mm, mm, don't be aggressive people. <laughs> you,
2: know? <laughs> yeah. you know, most audits come out okay, or maybe they find a little bit that's taxable. So they don't really get a whole lot out of you. Mm-hmm. But it's the CPA fees, the attorney fees, whatever you have to yeah, pay. right. That's where it really gets you.
1: Right. Right. Okay, perfect. Okay. So I guess we're ready to discuss how the reverse works and how it's different.
2: Sounds good. So, these are really the, the the primary 1031 exchange structures, if you will. We have forward exchanges, uh, which you're selling first, buying second. Um, and we'll talk more a little bit more about that, but we're going to focus on reverse 1031 exchanges. And what was your term? Buy first? Oh,
1: buy now, sell later. Buy
2: now, sell later. <laughs> I love that.
1: <laughs> program. I have to add program to it, right? So, people go, oh, it's a program, you know. Which it is, but you know,
2: it is. it is absolutely. But but it's certainly a thing. Um, yeah. And then there's improvement exchanges. You don't see a whole lot of those because, especially here in California, uh, mm-hmm. trying to build or improve a property you purchased through a 1031 exchange, you're limited to 180 days, and to to buy it to close on it,
1: getting the permits going to take that long.
2: Absolutely. Permitting process in California is ridiculous. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just really tough to do those. We do them, but it's just really, really difficult. Mm. And then there's foreign property uh, 1031s, which we kind of talked about already. Mm. So with Forward exchange or regular exchange or normal 1031 exchange, people call them all sorts of things, but that's your regular 1031 exchange. You're selling first, you're buying second, It can be concurrent. So you sell and you buy on the exact same day. Escrows close on the same day. It's difficult to get all the parties to cooperate together and get that to work. It's kind of like herding cats. Uh, It's tough, but it can be done. Uh, Most of them are on a delayed basis. You close on your sale, then you close on your purchase later. Uh, That's actually 97% of our transaction volume. Um, So that shows you that that's really the most popular. They're certainly the most streamlined, the easiest, the least expensive, et cetera. Uh, But it does have risks. So we talk about that next. And you have to have a qualified intermediary unless you're doing If you're doing a concurrent exchange and you know what you're doing and you know how to document it, you don't have to use a professional qualified intermediary. Most people don't know that, what they're doing. So it's, I wouldn't be very careful unless you know what you're doing with, with, and doing an exchange without a qualified intermediary. Mm. So, and I'll defer the risk to just a minute uh, after we get over kind of summer. Yeah. Um, the summer. So the reverse exchanges have exploded in the last, say, year, year and a half. Uh, for us, it's gone up about 400%. So it's been a huge growth in reverses. Um, And and that's a factor of the market. We had COVID and coming out of COVID. um, We have just huge amounts of money out there. You have a hot real estate market. You have bidding wars. You have multiple offers. Uh, It's just a crazy market. So the reverse allows you to go out and buy your property first, lock it up. You've got it. You don't have to worry about, am I going to find my replacement property? And then you sell. So buy now, sell later. I'm going to, I love that. I'm going to have to capitalize on the thing. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, So really just, that's what it boils down to. It's, it's a lot more complicated than this. And we'll talk about that, but really it boils down to you buy first, you sell later. The, the challenge is that you have to have a parking arrangement, uh, the IRS has set up this whole exchange accommodation title holder role, which is one of the things we do. Uh, we have to hold. Ex- so, what
1: did you say? Exchange accommodator?
2: Uh, exchange accommodation title holder. People call it EAT for short. Okay. This goes well with me because I love EAT. I love to eat. Love yeah.
1: <laughs> and that, that doesn't mean that. It means you're working. <laughs>
2: Yep, And reverses are only about 3%, a little less than 3% of our transaction volume because of the complexities and the costs and all the moving parts. And we'll get into that as well. So that kind of gives you that. But if you as an investor can, you know, get through all the stuff we're going to talk about. reverses really take a lot of the risk out of the 1031 exchange because you buy first you don't have to worry about whether or not you found your property you found it right and i mean i
1: the- just just to drill that home i have seen so many people with failed exchanges because they couldn't pull the tr- first of all they back themselves into a corner and they have to decide too quickly on a property and then in the, the market we've been in for the last five years, let's say, with people just going crazy and buying up everything and cash offers beating people, sometimes it's just they can't even get the property. Even if they don't like it, they couldn't even get it, right? So you so you see a lot of big tax bills because you couldn't take action for whatever reason. You couldn't take action and you didn't go through with it. And then, of course, the bummer parts, you not only do you owe the taxes, but you don't have the cash flow. And then people are disappointed and go, oh well, heck! If I have to pay the taxes, I'm just going to wait and buy something, right? And then they never do. So you know, or or it takes them a long, long time. So it's
2: even if they do, they got a lot of ground to make up because taxes. So you got to got to backpedal quite a bit. Yeah. So so that kind of gives you an over your flavor. The the other exchange we talked about quickly is the Improvement 1031 Exchange. Just quickly, that just means that someone has sold property. Uh, they're buying replacement property. They have leftover exchange funds and they want to build or retrofit or improve the property they bought. Same thing. They're more complicated, et cetera. Um, and we'll talk about the lender side of that. And that's where Athena comes into the to the picture. Mm-hmm. Most lenders can't touch it where Athena can.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Again, with reverses and improvements, there's this parking arrangement where we have to hold legal title to the property. So most traditional lenders won't touch it at all. And so that's part of the mix of what you need to look at when you're going through this. Mm -hmm. And improvement exchanges are by far way less than 1% of what our transaction volume is.
1: Yeah, I bet. So, And just as a quick aside, are you seeing, is Exeter's business in your... In all the business you've done in, say, the last couple of years, are people exchanging out of California mostly? Or what would you say the percentages of, you know, inter- interstate exchanges versus out of state?
2: Good question. We haven't really uh, tracked or calculated the percentages, but the I can say the number of people selling and exchanging out of state has gone up a lot compared to what it used to be and mm. uh, just talking to people they're just so frustrated with california right that's
1: they, what they, i was they, wondering if you guys track or at, even just if you have a feel for it you know if you don't have data you have a feel for how many you see go across your desk right
2: yeah and it's something that we've just been so busy we haven't t- had time to, to do that but we do, we will go back and do that just as. as that'd be
1: interesting i'd love to hear that data but yeah
2: the other interesting thing uh, that Kind of makes me wonder, okay, we have all these people selling and exchanging out of California, but obviously somebody's buying. Otherwise, they couldn't sell. Right. The question is who's buying and who the, what, heck? <laughs> and who the heck? And what does that do to the mix in California? And I think we're going to see a shift so that a, a higher percentage of the real estate is owned by primary residents or owner occupied uh, because they want to live in the property and they don't have to, they don't fall under all these new regulatory and political guidelines for land. Right. Um, it'll be interesting to see when the dust settles. It'll be years before we know that probably, but mm-hmm, right. kind of interesting. So we, we kind of hit this nail on the head already, but with forward exchanges, there's risks. Um, the risk is what we've kind of been talking about. You sell first, you know, you've closed escrow, you trigger your capital gain tax and your depreciation recapture tax. And the question is, can you identify property you want to buy during the 45-day window? Can you actually close on it and go all the way through and take title to it, et cetera? If you can't, if you can't identify, you can't find it or you do, but you can't close on it, it becomes a failed 1031 exchange and it's taxable. There's no way to go back and fix it. There's no way to go back and undo the transaction. It's just taxable. So that's another that's probably one of the primary reasons people use reverse exchanges because they don't want this risk. They want to buy first and know they've got it locked up So that's really the benefit of the reverse so the the reverse of course um it's a like it's a great alternative to the forward ten thirty one exchange because it solves that uh but it does have its own challenges, so we'll talk about that next. For those who want the citation it's revenue uh procedure 2000-37 so the IRS came out with that in the year 2000 Uh, for those who want to go read up on it so that's the revenue procedure that actually allows this parking arrangement we're going to be talking about so you know why would you use a reverse uh why would you not use a reverse uh there's there's you got to cover both sides of the whole thing so we've kind of covered why you would use it which is take the risk out of the forward 1031 exchange. Um, you don't have to worry about the deadlines, but it's also good when you've got the la- the market like we've had the last two years, three years. I mean, it's a crazy market. Like Athena pointed out, it's just nuts. And, you know, multiple offers and bidding wars and it's just nuts. So if you do a forward exchange, there's a very high probability that you won't be able to get the property. So that's why the reverses kind of took off for those who could do that. So it really helps with all of that. Um, there's also all sorts of reasons why you might have to buy first. We've had clients where they were going to do a regular forward 1031 exchange. They've got their property sold; it's under contract, it's in escrow. They put their new replacement property under contract; it's in escrow, and there's it's just about ready to close on the sale and almost ready to close on the buy. And all of a sudden, the buyer on the sale falls out. So now you have the issue of. Do I walk away and lose my deposit? Do I still close on the purchase? I mean, what do I do? And if you want to proceed, you're probably fortunate buying first and then selling later. So that's where the reverse can also come in is to kind of save the day.
1: And this is one of the reasons that I kind of feel with this shifting market more deals falling through interest rates changing so much people you know look for a home one month the next month their payments like $500 more per month so they back out so i think because of this shifting market we're going to see this as a way more important tool for who knows how long till that that all that dust settles
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's funny when we talk to clients and they're panicking over the increased interest rates. And I always point out when I got into the business, mortgage rates were 16%. So, deals still got done. I mean, values probably come down and you have to get creative sometimes and what have you, but deals-
1: This is actually probably going to be one of the best opportunities (laughs) in a very long time for a lot of investors. So- Absolutely. You yeah. have to have a strong constitution sometimes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's true. Get
1: yeah, through some of this.
2: Uh, that's true. It's, it's sustain power and, and don't give up and, you know, try not to be scared to death and just, you, you know, plan it and go through it. Execute your plan. Uh, but, you know, when you, when the market was crazy two years ago and a year ago, etc., cetera, you know, you're selling at the high, but you're also buying at the high. Right. And you have phenomenally low interest rates, but you're paying a, a really high price. Today... The market's coming down; it's transitioning, and so even if it drops, that means you're selling at a lower price, but you're also buying at a lower price. But now you have higher interest rates. Interest mm-hmm. rates can always be refinanced five years later, ten years later, whatever. Right. So, interest rate is not necessarily the the death knell of, of the transaction. So, look at the overall picture. Great advice. But the um, you know why should you not do a reverse exchange? Uh, most people. <laughs> Most people, when they listen to it and they go through the whole process, that some of them just go, uh, that's, that's just too much. I, I don't want to talk about it. So that's one of them. There's a lot more involved. There's a lot more complication. There's a lot more moving parts. There's more costs involved and labor intensive, et cetera. Um, to kind of give you, a, 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 I mean, there, there's all sorts of feeds out there. So it kind of depends. Um, with a regular forward 1031 exchange, I think most of the really good qualified intermediaries, they probably fall in a range of like 1000 to $1,500 per 1031 exchange if it's a one-to-one exchange. Okay. Um, with reverse exchanges, they're all over the place and they have a lot of extra pieces, extra prices or fees. So you have to kind of look at the bigger picture. Um, but you're going to find reverses. For those who really know what they're doing are probably in the seven to twelve thousand dollar range. We're typically eight to ten,
1: mm.
2: um, so that kind of gives you an idea of what you're looking at there in, in terms of uh, price and cost.
1: And There's, I think part of that, and I'm, I'm you may be getting to this, but I think a big chunk of that is because you, your title holder position, that's going to be an LLC, right? And you um, uh, do individual LLCs for each and every client's transaction, so it's not like you can repurpose an older LLC to do this. I mean, I don't think you'd want to do that. So, um, so, but the cost of doing the proper paperwork for the correct wording in this type of LLC, that's a single asset LLC, that cost is is baked into that fee that you just mentioned, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. And actually that brings up a really good point because there are some exchange companies who don't set up new entities for each transaction. And that is a huge risk to you as the investor. The um, you know think about it. We uh, you know we go through two to three hundred LLCs a year, so we're doing a lot of reverse ten thirty one exchanges. And if we put that real estate all through the same entity for the entire year, it's just a matter of time before somebody's property has some kind of a lien or a judgment or toxic waste or whatever it might be that's going to attach maybe the the entity or maybe attach all the properties that go through the entity. So, it's critical that you have a brand new entity just for your transaction and that entity gets dissolved or you keep it uh, once your transaction's over with. So, that's a good point. Um, Never, I would
1: never... I mean, that's a scary thought what you just said that. So, some companies that are doing reverse exchanges, um, they're holding, well, you're all holding title to our property until we're ready to, to take over, right? But they're using an LLC that has other people total strangers properties owned by that same LLC. Yep,
2: yeah, that's exactly right. Oh, and, and wow I you don't know
1: why <laughs> they do
2: it uh, you know part of it is a cost savings, part of it is just the way they do it. Um, you know get the cost down, you can charge less, but the clients don't realize they're stepping into a huge liability situation. huge
1: risk there, yeah,
2: yeah you just okay, never
1: good know to know where it's going to go. And you wouldn't, as a consumer, you would not know to ask that when you call to get their quoted fee. Um, and even if they tell you, you know, they may just full disclosure, hey, we do this thing. But as a consumer, you may not know what, what kind of risk that represents, right? So that's, that's very good that we pointed on that.
2: Absolutely, yep. That's just that's a big one. It's huge. I mean, I get it. It's it's very labor intensive to form an LLC, take title, you know, do everything you have to do to maintain it, then ultimately dissolve it or transfer it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot of work, but it's the only way to do it right. That's the best practices. Uh, anybody who's doing something using just one entity, they're just taking shortcuts, and they shouldn't be doing that.
1: Well, for sure, if someone was with one of those com- companies that does that. There is no way my investor would say, "Oh, sure, we'll give you a loan with this LLC holding title." And no, there's no way.
2: That's true. Yep, that's absolutely right.
1: I mean, but, uh, of course, we care about us, right? So we, as lenders, are not playing that game. <laughs> you know, <that's>
2: right.
1: <laughs> you know, we won't. We'll, we'll go play a different game than if that's if that's what's going on. So yeah, that's
2: what yeah, that's what it was dude. and that's literally the last excuse me, the last bullet item is is the challenges with lenders. We can talk about that coming up Mm -hmm. Um, because lenders, you know, most lenders won't touch it. So that's, that's really a big one.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, for sure, just from the world of money, right? Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, VA, USDA, none of those guys allow you to even get the loan in the name of an LLC, that you are the only beneficiary. There's no question that it's you, right? Um, So they're out. And then anyone that's like a conduit to sell to Wall Street, like jumbo, we'll call them jumbo lenders. They also are out of it. It has to be a lender who controls their own money. That's that's whatever that looks like, you know, non-QM, a portfolio lender, um, you know, a small regional bank, maybe, you know, people that keep their loans in-house and use their own money. They're not answering to any other investor. Um, If they control their own money, those are the only ones that will be able to do that.
2: Absolutely. That's a perfect summary. That's a great way to look at it, because that's exactly what the deal is. That's always the challenge. So let's kind of dive into the reverse structure there. Um, And this will lead in right into more discussion on the lender side of of the transaction. So Mechanically, you know how is it structured, and it's certainly a lot more complicated than a regular forward exchange with a forward exchange. All you have is the qualified intermediary they draft the ten thirty one exchange documents they work with the escrow on the sale and the buy side, and you know it's fairly straightforward with the reverse um in fact, maybe what I should do is back up and say uh, a pure reverse exchange, and i'll caution you that that does not exist but To kind of set the stage, a peer reverse exchange would allow the investor to go out, buy the new property, take title to it, own both properties at the same time, and then sell the relinquished property later. And the IRS does not permit that, it just doesn't exist. But they've set up this uh, kind of parking arrangement, which is the Revenue Procedure 2000 37 that I referenced before where typically the replacement property they're buying is gonna be acquired and held or quote unquote part uh, with an exchange accommodation title holder. So we have a sister company that we have that all they do is act as the exchange, <coughs> excuse me, the exchange accommodation title holder. And I'll have a little diagram next to show you that. Um, so that adds complexity, just like you pointed out, it adds complexity to the transaction because they have to set up all those individual LLCs, et cetera. And there's a whole different set of documents as well. So it's a lot more complicated. Uh, investors have a hard time kind of understanding the process and the flow. Uh, and it just adds complexity to the closing process, to escrow, to title. Uh, they need to verify, you know, who are all these entities, give me all the legal documents. So that <clears throat> there's just a lot more involved. So I, I obviously got ahead of myself here. So <laughs> here's your true or pure reverse exchange that is not permitted. So we have to rely on that parking arrangement. So this is where it gets a little difficult to explain verbally, but I'll do my best and, you know, throw questions at me if, if you have any questions. And yeah,
1: please fit, put your questions in the q and I've got the box open so I don't miss it. So go ahead if you have questions.
2: So the, there's really two ways to structure a reverse 1031 exchange. And we refer to them as the exchange last or the exchange first. The exchange last is really the preferred structure from the investor's perspective. Um, To kind of break it up into component parts, there's really two component parts. With a reverse exchange, you've got the actual 1031 exchange and you have a parking arrangement. So with the exchange last, that means that upfront the only thing we do is acquire and hold or quote unquote park legal title to your new replacement property. So you found your new replacement property. Uh, you're going to buy first. Um, we're going to take title to that property and escrow closes. That's the only thing that has occurred. So the exchange hasn't happened yet. All we've done is the parking arrangement. So because the exchange hasn't happened yet, we don't care how much cash you put down. We don't care how much the financing is. Uh, you can finance it 100% if you can find a way to do that. It doesn't matter. Uh, so you, if you go back to your exchange rules, you have to reinvest all your equity. But in this case, we haven't done the exchange yet. We've only parked title to the new replacement property. So that's why it's preferred, uh, the preferred method, because it doesn't matter how you pay for this thing. You're just parking title to it with us. Then, let's say, you know, three, four or five months down the road, uh, you sell your current property, the relinquished property. Now, at that point, it's really a concurrent 1031 exchange. So the relinquished property closes escrow, Uh, you're gonna deed the property to the buyer, the buyer walks away, they don't care. The proceeds come to us as the 1031 exchange qualified intermediary, and then we can take the cash and we can pay down or pay off the debt, whatever's necessary, so we can make sure that the property has the right amount of equity, the right amount of debt, et cetera, and then we wrap up the reverse exchange and transfer the parked property to the investor. So it's really a parking arrangement up front and a concurrent exchange at the back end. And that's the preferred method because it allows you a lot more flexibility. Um, the, the other thing, and this is probably getting a little too deep in the weeds, but let's say that you buy property for $5 million and the property you decide to sell is worth $10 million. We take title to the five million dollar asset, and then you're starting to scratch your head, thinking, "Geez, I'm I'm selling a five million dollar asset to pay for this thing. I'd really like to buy another replacement property to use up the other five million dollar of sale proceeds." Mm-hmm. as we took title to the replacement property, we can park title to the replacement property. Say month five when the relinquished property sells for ten million. We can take half of that and allocate it to the reverse exchange and wrap it up. And the other $5 million we can start with a brand new forward 1031 exchange. Oh, that's interesting. And buy another replacement property. So that's just a way where you can kind of connect the reverse and the forward exchanges to solve various problems that might come up.
1: When so much less stress, right? Because in the meantime, back. you've probably been looking for other properties. We the investors selling our property, we're, we're already looking for property, so so I could see I could see where that would happen. So the investor is not taking over the LLC that you created as the placeholder thing, right? Because then that's not an exchange. If if I just take your over your LLC or or can you do like? Because I'm thinking I want to save costs, right? Could I just could I just have you rework the LLC? paperwork with an attorney and say, this beneficiary is no longer here. And this one is now here taking over the LLC's shares or?
2: Yeah, really good question. It's my favorite answer. It depends. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh.
2: <laughs> um, well, that's what we, that's exactly what we do try to do. So when we set up the LLC, of course, uh, it's set up for just one transaction. Um, let, me, let, me, let me see if I can fast forward. Oh, here it is. Next slide. So that's perfect. So you see here on the left is the Qualified Intermediary, and that just does the actual 1031 exchange. On the right is the exchange accommodation title holder that we're talking about. Mm. So here, our entity is Exeter Asset Services Corporation, and that's the exchange accommodation title holder. But we never want that entity to hold all of the real estate. So that entity then sets up all of these um, hundreds of single-member LLCs during the year to hold title to all these properties. Um, So when we set them up, it's owned by a single member. So they're initially a single member LLC and they're disregarded entities. Mm -hmm. So they exist from a legal perspective, but for tax purposes, they're completely ignored. So if, if we transfer the LLC to a single person... We can do that. So we can transfer the LLC. They become the sole member of the LLC. And that's exactly how title is conveyed is by an assignment of the membership interest.
1: Oh, I had in my mind that the LLC was selling it to another LLC to make it look like a sale, like so that there's a paper trail of a, of a sale. But I guess
2: you're, yeah. you're kind of on track. So up here, the uh, Exeter Asset Services Corporation, which is the exchange accommodation title holder, They are contracting to sell the real estate to the client, the investor. And the conveyance of title is done instead of using a grant deed. Conveyance of title is used or is uh, structured as an assignment of the membership interest. So you're on point. It's exactly right. You're kind of buying it. Now, the complexity comes in when there's multiple investors. So, for example, I had a phone call with a client today. Uh, they're doing a reverse exchange. There's three individuals who are going to buy this property, and they want to take title as tenants in common. Mm. So in that case, if we assign the LLC to them, it, be, it becomes a three-member, three-person LLC, which is now a partnership. It's no longer a disregarded entity. So that one won't work. In that case, we have to do a deed.
1: Interesting. Okay gets like
2: a little complex there. but you know, in a lot of cases, the quote- unquote investor slash exchange or uh, is usually either an, one individual or it's one entity. So we can assign the LLC or transfer the LLC to them and that will qualify. And if they want to keep the LLC, uh, they could certainly say, I want a California LLC or I want a, a Wyoming LLC or what right. have you. We can do that. Uh, typically, you know, our trust company is located in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So we use Wyoming LLCs and it acts as the uh, registered agent for service of process. But if somebody's going to keep the property and there's a lender involved, etc., cetera, they may not be able to get, you know, get rid of the LLCs. So they may have to keep it. So in that case, they may want to, uh, you know, set up a specific LLC in a specific state.
1: Mm -hmm. So explain this to me, Bill, you bought the property I want with your company and you created an LLC that you control. You own my property. How do I know you're going to sell it to me? How do you, how do I not, I might think, Hey, Bill and I have known each other a long time. He's not going to do that to me, but you could just go and sell it to somebody else. So, is there some kind of contract bill that says you're actually going to give me the property that I picked out and liked so much?
2: Yep, really good question. It's amazing how many clients uh, don't ask those questions and they're they're critical. They're very important. Um, so yes, there's the there's the exchange accommodation title holder agreement or the QEAA. Um, And that specifically spells out that we are only permitted to hold title. That's our only role. We have to transfer the property to the investor when the whole thing is wrapped up. It talks about all the requirements and the processes, et cetera. Um, So contractually, that's all we can do. Acquire title, hold title, and convey title. Uh, But the next extension of that question is, yeah, but what if you don't do it? Because there's always that situation where an employee decides to go kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. So in that case, you want to look for your your insurance and bonding to make sure you're covered. Um, and and a lot of clients. Well, just, I'm
1: looking for your insurance and bonding. Is that yes,
2: correct?
1: Okay, absolutely.
2: not no, mine. <laughs> okay, not Yep, mine. Um, and so you want to look at the at that what that is. So far, in our case, uh, we're actually one of the few qualified intermediaries that has any type of regulatory or government oversight. So we spent a couple of years going through the review process and. Uh, it was a long couple of years, very intense, but it's a a review and approval process by the Division of Banking. So we obtained our own trust company charter. Mm-hmm. So when we're holding cash, all the cash is actually held by Exeter Trust Company, uh, which is licensed, regulated, and audited by the Wyoming Division of Banking. We're subject to an annual audit. We're subject to extra uh, equity capital requirements. There's special insurance requirements, et cetera. So uh, we have $5 million in, in fidelity bond. That's theft. Crime insurance, uh, theft, misappropriation, embezzlement of funds. Uh, we have errors and emissions insurance uh, that would cover you if we screw up, if we omit something, and that creates a loss for you. It's for $5 million. Uh, because we're a trust company, we also have a financial institution blanket bond, and that covers all sorts of other fiduciary issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also includes things like cyber fraud, wire fraud, and things like that, which are getting right. more and more prevalent in today's world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means we have a regulatory audit every year where they're looking over the shoulders or making sure all of the processes are done correctly. We follow our policies and procedures and, and what have you. So all of those are important. Uh, I've been doing this for 38 years now, and almost every failure I've seen could have been prevented had there been some type of regulatory oversight. So that is critical. That's an excellent mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm.
1: So you buy, we identify this property we want to exchange into eventually. You take title to that, pro- or Exeter's EAT division takes title, has formed an LLC to, to, to take title of it. And you park it until we sell our, our property that we're selling. Exactly. Once that closes, your, your, um, your QI is going to take the money and buy this property that you've been, that your other division's
2: been holding for us. Exactly, in fact, let me get to the next slide again. That's
1: oversimplified, but that's the idea, right?
2: Well, that's exactly it. So when the relinquished property sells, like you just said, the for closes, the funds come to the qualified intermediary. Um, so that way they're, they're held in the qualified intermediary account. They're actually held by Exeter Trust Company, not the qualified intermediary in our case. Uh, but in most cases it goes to the qualified intermediary, but that's part of the 1031 exchange. Then the QI is going to use those funds to move over here, effectively pay those funds to the exchange accommodation title holder to, quote-unquote, purchase the parked property. And the qualified intermediary will instruct the exchange accommodation title holder to transfer the property to the investor, whether that be through a deed or whether that be an assignment of the LLC membership interest or or whatever is appropriate for that particular case. And then, in most cases, the client has invested out of pocket cash. So they've either advanced everything, maybe, and it's an all cash purchase, or they may have put 20, 30, 40% down. So those funds now can be paid back to the client. So the exchange accommodation title holder has signed uh, some kind of a loan agreement, or in our case, we call it an advance agreement where the investor has advanced funds to us to do this, and then we pay those back to him once we get the qualified intermediaries cash.
1: Got it. So one quick question from the lending side. So you're signing all the loan documents, correct?
2: Good question, yes. The EAT
1: EAT is is signing all, or no, the, the LLC is signing all the documents as the LLC or whoever, whoever is the representative on the LLC, right?
2: Yes, that's probably the most common is the LLCs down here that we've set up to hold title to the property. Uh, they would be the borrowers, so they would execute the promissory note and they would execute the prom- or the uh, deed of trust or the mortgage. Uh, it does have to be non-recourse to the uh, exchange accommodation title holder and the parking entity. Uh, it could be guaranteed by the, the investor taxpayer, uh, it could be cross collateralized. I mean, there's the mm-hmm. wide. So
1: it's okay. So I just want to make sure that in the exchange, it's okay for the 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 person who owns the the exiting property, the old property. Um, that person, even though they're involved in that, they can guarantee the loan for the LLC on the new property, right? There's, that doesn't ruin the exchange or anything. Right, Correct. yep.
2: Yeah. doesn't okay. do anything. So you can
1: be a guarantor, you're just not on title, and that's kind of what my understand, the whole thing with exchanges is the names have to match, right? So
2: exactly. yep. So in that case, you know the the exchange accommodation title holders really holding title on behalf of the exchange or uh, mm-hmm. kind of as their agent, if you will. Right, and so they, they own it, but not directly. And that buys them the rest of that 180-day window to sell their current property and then wrap all this up. And the guarantee is not a problem. It's very common. It's done, okay. I would say, done most of the time on the lending side. Right. So that was kind of the exchange last structure. We park title up front. We do the concurrent 1031 exchange at the back end. There are cases where that doesn't work. Um, it may be that you're going to close escrow in just a three, four, five days. Uh, you don't have time to change lenders. Maybe it was back to that example I gave where you had the sale under contract in escrow, you had the purchase under contract in escrow. And at the last minute, the buyer of your sale property fell out of escrow and you have to proceed with the purchase or you're going to lose the property. Uh, So in that case, um, the lender probably is not going to redraw the documents, probably will not allow us to take title to the property, and you don't have time to find a new lender. Um, you know, if you got a week or more, you can probably get that done, Athena. Would you like a week or two weeks? What's what's the timeline that you probably need to get that done? For the loan? I'm yes. Sorry, I was
1: reading the questions in the chat box. Um well, it can go very quickly. It could be two weeks. I mean, you know, we really are waiting on paperwork. So the title report and the, you know, maybe an appraisal, maybe if there's a lot of collateral, then maybe we just do a drive by appraisal, you know, when we have to go quick, but usually it's other people holding us up. Yep.
2: Yeah. And, and that's really what it boils down to. In a lot of cases, there's not enough time. Um, although to get a reverse exchange in place in three or four days is pretty tough. It, it, it requires a lot of moving parts and a lot of redrafting of documents and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one of the areas where we'd have to flip it and do the other structure, the other reverse exchange structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's usually when the lender says, absolutely not, and you don't have time to go find a different lender. Uh, it may be some type of an operational issue. Uh, For Mm -hmm. example, if the property you're buying happens to be a gas station, we're probably not going to take title to that property because of obviously environmental contamination. Because of the
1: risk. Yeah.
2: Uh, So you never know. Um, So maybe something like that. It may be something where if we take title, it causes other problems with a regulatory agency or a licensing agency or something. So there are ways or reasons where we can't take title to the replacement property Mm. So in that case, we can look at taking title to the relinquished property, the one you're selling.
1: Which is fascinating. I've never heard of this before. So yes. hold, on, hold on tight, people. This is good.
2: Hold on t- we, uh It's just a, a lot more complicated. We. This is probably less than 5% of the reverse exchanges out there. Um, so this is really a concurrent 1031 exchange up front uh, instead of at the back end. So that's why we call it exchange first. You close on the purchase of your new property, you're going to take title of the new purchase. So, in that case, the lender, if they're already in place and it's a traditional lender, they won't care. They can still take, uh, you know, they can still do the, the financing. Uh, however, we're also drafting a very basic purchase and sale agreement, and we're buying on paper, we're buying that relinquished property from you. And that's so that's the reason it's a concurrent 1031 exchange up front. So because of that, now we do care whether or not there's enough equity reinvested, whether the debt is the right amount of debt, and that usually creates a liquidity problem. A lot of people don't have enough cash laying around to advance that kind of money, so it may not be feasible, but if you've got enough cash, if it's an all-cash purchase, it can certainly be done. Um, If you've got enough cash to put down equal to what you think the equity is going to be coming out of the sale of your relinquished property when it ultimately sells, you know it it might work., uh, but it's just a lot more complicated, a lot more uh, coordination. and the deed to the relinquished property has to be recorded in our entity's name, the one we set up for you concurrently with the closing of the replacement property. So it's just a lot more challenging right,
1: with that. the sale. okay. so, so you guys are on standby to buy my property. So you're on standby till I find the replacement property. Am I understanding that right?
2: Yeah, we kind of wait. And when the replacement property closes in that case, you as the investor would actually take title to the replacement property. And then concurrently, we would take title to the relinquished property. But we're effectively buying the property from you on paper. I see. uh Uh, So the reverse exchange really is done and wrapped up up front. And then we get left holding the property of the relinquished property, uh, until you sell it, and so we actually become the seller of that property when you ultimately sell it.
1: So you're saying the danger is that now you hold title to the property that I'm going to sell, and we don't know what it's going to sell for, but I already locked in the numbers on the new property. So if those don't match up quite right, I could have a taxable event, right?
2: Exactly. In the last two years, that has not been uncommon where they guesstimate what the equity is and they got into a bidding ward you know, maybe it sold for one or two or $300,000 over asking price. We had one where it sold for a million eight over asking. And, and that just becomes taxable because they didn't anticipate it. They didn't reinvest it up front. It's not the end of the world. It's it's actually a good problem to have. You sold it mm-hmm. for more than you thought, but unfortunately mm-hmm. it is taxable.
1: Right. So the other way is okay. If it sells for less than what you thought and you bought based on that first number before it, fe- you know, before the price fell, you're okay because your new property is more than the old property. So, it's the other way that's a problem. If you make exactly. more money and you kind of don't want to walk away and say, oh, never mind, you can have it for that lower price because, you know, I mean, how, do you, how does that work, right? So
2: Exactly right. So, there's, there's some guessing games in there, you know, and in a normal market, you can get pretty close, but in crazy markets, it's sometimes difficult to, to guesstimate to what you're going to be at. So this particular diagram kind of wraps up the first, what we call the exchange last, which is the first example we gave. So up front, we are acquiring and parking title to the replacement property. At the back end, this is the diagram as to what happens. So at the back end, the investor owns the relinquished property. The investor sells the relinquished property, let's say three, four, five months later to the buyer. Uh, escrow is going to close and the cash then goes to the qualified intermediary. The qualified intermediary then turns around and pays the cash to the exchange accommodation title holder to quote unquote purchase the park replacement property. And they also give the exchange accommodation title holder instructions to transfer the property to the investor. All of this happens concurrently at the back end of that exchange last structure. Okay. So I'm not sure this diagram <laughs> helps or hurts.
1: Yeah, it's it's a little confusing, but yeah, it makes sense. Maybe it should be more parallel lines, I don't know. So Keith had a question and and I missed it a few minutes ago. I, for, I forgot I should be scrolling this. Um he asked if he could you could purchase the replacement property in a land trust instead of an LLC. That way the ownership transfer is like off the books.
2: Uh, good question. It could, you could do that. It would certainly qualify from a reverse 1031 exchange perspective, because initially uh, we'd buy the property through a land trust and, um, Exeter Asset Services Corporation would be the beneficiary under the land trust. Uh, so that's the owner of the property at that point. And then you could transfer the beneficial interest in the land trust to the investor at the back end, um, the challenge is it, it doesn't provide any liability protection. Uh, so I doubt you're going to find a qualified intermediary or exchange accommodation title holder that would use a land trust because they're worried about liability. Mm-hmm. Um, but to uh, to work around that, you know I would look for we'd have to look at the fact pattern, but you could probably say look I'm buying property say in California. Uh, I want to use a California LLC. I'm going to keep the California LLC. And then we could transfer the membership interest in the California LLC to you, which you would keep then. And so that way there'd be no conveyance of, no no recorded conveyance of title. Um, And and in fact, a lot of times lenders would require that because they don't want to have to have their borrower just disappear. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are issues. And that kind of probably goes into our next uh, slide, which is lender issues. So, you know, Athena, you're right on the money where the exchange accommodation title or sets up this parking LLC, the parking LLC then acquires title to the property. If there's a lender involved, it will sign the promissory note, it will sign the deed of trust or mortgage. Um, And then the question is, when at the back end, when we transfer that LLC to the investor, what happens? And there's, there's a couple of different possibilities, and it really depends both on the investor, what they would like, and then on the lender and what they would allow under the underwriting guidelines. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, the lender says, look, we just don't want the borrower to disappear, so you're going to have to keep the LLC. And mm-hmm. so that's one possibility is the the LLC was the borrower and signed the loan documents, et cetera, and it's transferred to the investor. And now the investor is the sole member, but the borrower is the LLC. It stays intact and the lender doesn't have to redo anything. Right. Um, Another is the the investor says, I already have an LLC. And so when this is all done, I want the property to go into my LLC or my trust or what have you. Um, And so that can be done as well, as long as the lender is okay with that. And there's some type of either automatic or or a formal assumption or, or something like that. So
1: yeah, it, you would need something like that to, yeah, because we review the LLC documents up front, right? So it's very possible. I haven't seen your documents, so but you know, usually you have to re. re- if you're going to change LLCs, like let's say this happens with like flippers, right? They'll buy a property in the LLC, and then an investor wants to buy it in their LLC from the flipping company, so you know, a lot of times the flipping company got a good loan, they would like to take it over, especially since rates have gone up. But that means the lender has to review everything. But that's that's true of any assumption, right? So any loan that's being assumed, the lender wants to review the new entity or the new person or whatever, the, the new entity that's borrowing or taking over the loan, they're basically borrowing brand new, it's a new relationship. So they want to make sure that this new borrower meets their requirements, right? So
2: uh, so, so all of that should be probably talked about up front mm-hmm. with the lender to make sure you know exactly up what,
1: front how you're going to do it. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: uh, and I think a lot of clients wait to the back end, and then of course, you get surprises at that point. So that's where it gets a little challenging. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I didn't have in the slide here as a, as an issue to, to be concerned about, but you know, we acquire title and then we later convey title. Uh, in a lot of jurisdictions, that is not considered a second transfer because we're really not a third party buyer. Uh, we're you know, buying as the agent for the taxpayer just a park title to the property, and then we transfer to the real owner of the property. So in most counties here in California, uh, there's a specific exemption where we can quote the, the, ta- the revenue and taxation code, et cetera, and not be subject to a second documentary transfer tax. Uh, there are certain counties that give pushback and try to collect it, and then you have to argue, et cetera. Um, So that's something you want to be aware of, that depending on the county and also depending on what state you're in, uh, there could be a second documentary transfer tax involved. For example, New York and New Jersey, they don't care. There's two taxes, period, end of story. Uh, There's no exemption and there's no workaround.
1: Yeah, Uh, Florida's like that, too. Did I learn that the easy way? No, I learned that the hard (laughs) way.
2: (laughs) True, true, true. Yep. Yep. so in fact, Florida, I think unless you uh, have an all cash, it's based on the mortgage value, as I recall. Is that correct? Yeah, right. So yeah, you transfer and there's a mortgage, you get you get a tax. The, so that's one of the things to look out for, those ancillary things that kind of come up. But um, California, in most cases, except for a few counties, it's not uh, not a big issue. There's certain states where it could be, so you just have to kind of be aware of that. But in most cases, you're deferring enough taxes or it's not a big deal, Um New York is one we have to be careful because that one is a really expensive double documentary transfer tax. So um, that's another example where we may not want to take title to the replacement property. If the relinquished property is in a different state other than New York, we may want to take title to that just to save documentary transfer taxes. So that's another another example of why we might do that as well. Um, Elaine, any, uh, anything you want to do, Athena, on... Um, the lender side, you want to go into more depth? Did I lose Athena?
1: Sorry, I had a little blip there. <laughs> oh no problem. <laughs> Sorry about that.
2: Anything else on the lender side you want to go into more detail on?
1: Um, no, I think that was it. That's the kind of the most important thing is to, you know, to, I'm all, all about the exit strategy. So, you know, you need to know what you're going to do with an asset. So you set up how you're going to let borrow on that asset. Right. People don't think far enough in advance. I think exchanges, you're supposed to hang on to them. But, uh, for example, I had a borrower who went and got a hard money loan to do their exchange and they didn't have the paperwork necessary, didn't qualify for the takeout loan. So they were stuck, right? So you always want to think, how am I, I going to do this? Because a lot of these things should not be changed or difficult to change. So, and uh, difficult to undo. So I think that that's usually my advice. Let's think about, think this all the way through. So, you know, what loans you're going to need to do this or what cash you, you need, might need to do this, right? Um, So, yeah, sometimes I had a borrower like he didn't plan it ahead and I had to get mezzanine financing. And that's tough to find someone who's willing to give you some of your down payment money to do an exchange. So, you know, you just want to think all these things through. Where am I going to get the money? What's going to be necessary to make this come through? Right.
2: That's a good good example of how do you start planning? It's all about planning. And probably the second is getting your team together so that when you're mm-hmm. ready to move, they're all you know ready to move with you. Right. Go,
1: go you out. brought up a good point, like, for example, and I think it's in your video, not tonight, but about making team wise, making sure the escrow company knows how this is supposed to work so that they don't draw paperwork that's incorrect and could cause you a huge problem because you got put on title by accident. Because they're used to doing it, you know, they're used to doing regular exchanges and not the reverse exchange. So you just want to make sure everyone's on the same page from the get go. And, Absolutely. if you're, you know, you ask your escrow, how many reverse exchanges have you ever done? If they haven't done anything, it's not that you're firing them, but you do want to. You know, make sure that it's someone who's uh, seasoned and can be coached through the paperwork because it is it's a, a little bit of a mind twister that these things are all in the reverse order. Right. So you want someone who's very seasoned so at least they can be coached into the way this should go so that no no error and get on the phone with the Exeter team or whatever accommodator you're choosing. Make sure they they know how this is supposed to work.
2: Absolutely, because they're used to... Ahead fill- of
1: time, fill- not during escrow. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, they're they're used to filling in the banks for a normal 1031 exchange. It's always the investor all the way through and they print everything out. And we always request copies of everything before closing so we can review everything. But sometimes closing happens so quick before we even... Uh-huh. So, absolutely. And, and stay- we're always in
1: a rush. Even when it's been a three-month process, all of a sudden at the end, we're in a rush. <laughs>
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of the way it goes. Um, The next slide is just kind of a list of advanced strategies. I wasn't going to go into any detail there, but just just
1: give us an idea. All
2: sorts of ways of combining reverses and forwards, forwards and reverses, you know, et cetera, uh, to do all sorts of things. Building on property you already own. People usually tell you you can't do that, but there are rulings from the IRS that can allow that. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's uh, there's no way to do it without risk, but we do have three private letter rulings where the taxpayers requested it and the IRS approved it. Um, and that's the. I product. love
1: this buying promissory notes. You know, we have a lot of note investors in our group, so maybe that would be a, a conversation for another day. But usually, people say, "Oh no, you can't buy note. That's a security versus this is real estate." So. Can you tell us real quick how that might work?
2: Yeah, we kind of use the improvement 1031 exchange structure there. So we would actually go out and acquire and, you know, quote unquote, park the promissory note. So as the qualified intermediary would use the exchange accommodation title holder uh, to buy the note, take title to note, own the note. And then the question is, how do we convert it to real estate? So in most cases, when we're using this strategy, it's probably property or probably a note that's already in foreclosure and it's probably very close to the trustee's sale date, Mm. uh, then we would buy the note. And then as soon as the trustee's sale happens and assuming we're the winning bidder, then we get the, the deed from the trustee. Now we have real estate and we can convey real estate to the taxpayer. So it's kind of a fun little strategy there if you've got notes that are in default or something like that.
1: Well, a lot of our note investors go after the non-performing notes, so yeah.
2: So there are options that the risk with that. If you're doing a regular forward exchange, you've sold, you've triggered your gain, and if you're going after a note, uh, the trustee can postpone the trustee sale over and over and over. If they and right. past your 180 day mark, you're in trouble. So there, there's risks with that. You have to you have to kind of know all the parties and know what's really going on.
1: Right. Right. And what was that zero equity reverse? Oh,
2: zero equity exchange. is, uh, you know, see that coming up. So with the zero equity, um, it's a scenario where the investor owns property, a recession hits, and we could be very well headed that direction for, in a real estate recession, you never know, mm-hmm. um, where the value drops below what you owe on it. But there still could be a taxable gain. So, for example, let's say years and years ago, you bought a property for 100,000 to make it easy. And every year or other year, you refinance and then pull the equity out and it keeps going up in value, keep refinancing, et cetera. Gets to the point where it's worth, let's say, a million just to keep the numbers easy. And you refinance so your debt's now 900,000. Then a recession hits and the value drops to, let's say, 600,000 and you lose the property either through a short sale or a foreclosure or a, maybe a fire sale, you just have to sell it quickly for whatever reason. You sell it for 600000 and people think, oh, I don't have any, any tax to worry about because I, I owe more, I didn't get any equity out of it. But you paid $100,000 for the property, you still have a $500,000 taxable gain even though it's underwater. So when you have that scenario, you can sell the property or foreclose on it, or you know if it's a foreclosure or short sale, whatever it is, you can still structure a 1031 exchange, and you could defer that 500000 in that example. The challenge is you have no cash. So you're going to have to have other resources, other abilities to buy the replacement property. But it is possible. So it doesn't work for everybody. But as we go into markets like we're in now, you don't know where it's going to end up. We just wanted to throw that out there. That is possible if you have no equity to do a ten thirty one exchange. Check with your right. advisor, see if you have a taxable
1: gain. When at least minimize minimize the tax you're going to owe. Right? Why why not? Why throw in the towel and just say, oh well, I owe all the tax, and you know, at least try to to defer some of it.
2: Absolutely, and there are ways to do it. If you can get really creative, you can actually defer all of your taxes. It just it's not easy. It just it, and it requires some creativity, but it can be done
1: hmm. Right. Fabulous. Well, this has just been so enlightening. Thanks for hanging in with us, because I know this went longer than the hour we thought it would take. But um, but I just think the side notes are, are sometimes where the juice is. So so hopefully that's OK. And thank you to everyone who hung in with us, too. So, Bill, do you have any part, parting words of wisdom? We have all your contact information here on this screen. So that's fabulous.
2: Um, You know, the only thing I like to part with is you already kind of brought it up and that is planning. Um, With 1031 Exchanges, it's all about the timing. You have the 45 days, you have the 180 days, et cetera, and all of those moving parts. So plan, 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 get your, you know, your goals kind of in place, know what you're going to do, get your team in place so that you're ready to move at a moment's notice. Uh, You know, you just never know when things are going to come up. So you need your team in place. I think all of that is the most important part. Otherwise you wait to the last minute. You're just asking for a lot of stress and potential disappointment.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that totally makes sense. And um, so, if someone has questions about whether they should do an exchange, what their numbers would be um, a lot of people just don't even know what to aim for on their up leg or their, their purchase property. Do you have a calculator? Do you have a, hotline, they can call and say, Hey, I've got this scenario. What do you think I should do? Or what, what are my next steps? Do you have something like that?
2: Sure. They can certainly give this, give us a call. Um, Especially if they want to crunch the numbers, I'd be happy to chat with them directly. Uh, You know, everyone is different. Every transaction is different. They all have different moving parts. So we don't have a boilerplate calculator because they're all different, Mm -hmm. Um, but we can look at like an estimated settlement statement and kind of walk them through, uh, we can't calculate their tax or the gain or anything like that because we don't have all the specifics and we're not a tax preparer. We can get a very high level idea of how it works and whether it would benefit them. We can point out issues or problems that they may want to have their tax advisor or their attorney take a look at. Mm. Once they've chatted with us, then, you know, at some point, either before us or after us, they do need to talk to their tax advisor. Very important. I can't tell you how many times over the years, clients have come back and said, I got a problem. Here's the issue. And it's like, well, it would have been prevented had you talked to your tax advisor.
1: Right. Yeah, so it is a team effort because like I said earlier, everyone has their point of view on how this um, event that you're going to create will affect you, right? From the tax point of view, from the cash flow point of view, from the, you know, all of that, right?
2: Absolutely. Especially if it's a reverse exchange. Uh, you know, the, real, the, the two moving parts really is the, us as the qualified intermediary and you as the lender, Um, So we really need to jump on a conference call, walk through the properties, the structure, you know, what the underwriting guidelines might be, get everything Mm -hmm. in place, uh, because that's critical. That's going to come together. And you don't want at the 11th hour to find out that it's not going to work.
1: Right. Right. Well, fabulous. Well, thank you so much for your time, Bill. I really appreciate it. I think this is so helpful because I, you know, some sellers are going to have FOMO real soon. (laughs) You know, so I think we're going to see price cuts and there's going to be a lot of opportunity for people, but you do have to be ready to jump on that opportunity. So this has been so helpful. So thank you very much. And everybody, please contact Exeter. Even if you're thinking about um, the self-directed IRA, maybe you are interested in a land trust, just reach out to them and find out what they can do for you. And lastly, the shout out to the YouTube channel. If you guys want to learn about, all of this. They have a great YouTube channel. Is it just Exeter Exeter uh, company, maybe? Yeah, they can search
2: for the Exeter group of companies and that'll pop right up.
1: Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of good videos on there. So, very cool that you guys got on that. And say Thank thanks you. to your team. There's some really good videos that they put together too.
2: Super happy to help however we can.
1: Okay, great. Thanks, Bill. And thanks everyone for joining us. Have a great evening. Bye-bye.
0: This has been another episode of My Cash Academy's Investor's Corner with your host, Athena Paquette-Cornier. We wish you all the success you deserve as you use what you've learned here out in the real world. Check out the blog post for this episode, along with many more helpful resources at MyCashflowAcademy.com.